Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are going to be examining a number of common sovereign citizen beliefs. Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockie in Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for being here with me today. Uh, if you are new to the program, I want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we are going to be applying legal theory and moral philosophy to current events related to law, politics, and culture. Uh, now, I just want to remind you guys real quickly uh, that... I have recently opened up a couple avenues uh, for giving financial support to the channel. If you uh, would like to and are able to do that, you can either give a one-time donation through Venmo uh, or you can give a one-time or a recurring monthly donation through PayPal. Uh, you can just scan either of the QR codes there or you can follow the uh, web address that I have there as well. Enough whoring myself out though. Let's get to the topic for today. So I recently had a regular listener of mine uh, make a request for a topic, which was one I'd actually been wanting to cover uh, since I started the channel, really, uh, and that is talking about sovereign citizens. So I asked him for a list of sovereign citizen topics that he would like to see covered, uh, and today we are going to be taking a look at several of the suggestions that he gave me. So I want to thank you for the suggestion, Jay. Uh, it's a great topic, uh, and if anyone else has a topic, uh, that you would like to see discussed here, you can either leave me a comment uh, in this video down below, or you can send it to me in an email that is categoricalimperatives at gmx.com, uh, either way. So, today, the topics we're going to be discussing is, first of all, the capitalized name on government documents. Secondly, the meaning of a gold fringe flag. Third, what is color of law? Fourth, we're going to be discussing the difference between at-law and in-law. And then finally, we're going to be talking about the privileges of citizenship versus human rights. Now, uh, if anyone out there is unfamiliar with the sovereign citizen movement, uh, it's really just kind of a catch-all term for actually a, a lot of different groups who hold a number of different beliefs, but what brings them together is they all kind of revolve around idea that they believe that they have found secret meanings hidden in the law that means that they are not subject to the law. Um, if you want to know more about that, I suggest maybe just checking it out for yourself. You can find tons of information about them uh, all over the internet. But because their views are so uh, varied and disparate, I think the best way to do it is try to uh, just explain what they believe on a topic-by-topic -topic basis, which is exactly what we're going to be doing here today. So first off is the belief that the reason uh, a person's name appears in capital letters on a court or other document. I have uh, a copy here of the a uh, cert petition from the Supreme Court case of Cooper v. Aaron pulled up to show you what you mean or what they mean. As you can see, where I've highlighted uh, the names on the docket are both in all capital letters. 
And sovereign citizens construe this to mean that the document is not actually talking about them. That the name in all capital letters uh, represents what they will call a legal fiction or a straw man, or they will say a government-created corporation. Essentially, it's this thing that doesn't really exist, but it has your name, and it, it has... Uh, it, it, it's really hard to explain. Um, it, essentially, it's like a, a straw man version of you, like, like the thing says, um, and that it really is this government-created corporation that has your name, but it's not you, and you don't own it. Um, it's really difficult to explain, and to be honest, I don't really care enough to try and explain why they think that. Uh, though it is worth looking into for yourself if you want to try and understand this better. Uh, but for brevity's sake, my purpose here today is to explain why attorneys do these things and why the court expects them to. Now, the actual reason this is done is really a absurdly uh, mundane one, and it all goes back to the efforts to create a more uniform uh, and codified set of laws in the country. Uh, this started with the Federal Register Act of 1935 that created uh, a codification of law and requirements uh, such as the Federal Rules of uh, Civil Procedure, the Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure, also Criminal Procedure, as well as the Code of Federal Regulations uh, and the Universal Commercial Code, excuse me, Uniform Commercial Code, uh, just to name a few of them. So in brief, uh, in briefs and motions filed with the court, certain elements must meet a standard of what is known as clear and conspicuous. And as you can see here, this means articles, uh, article headings, party names, and signature blocks must meet uh, the standard of clear and conspicuous. There are currently a number of ways of achieving, achieving this such as capitalizing words uh, when the other disclosures are written in lowercase, using bold print uh, or underlining or setting a word off with an asterisk or printing it in a larger typeface. And you may be asking yourself, well, if we have so many options, why do people just tend to use the all cap standard? And the answer there is it's purely customary. I, I think it's really easy to forget just how recently the technological innovations that have made these kinds of changes really are. Um, I'm 35 years old, and I distinctly remember a time before the internet existed in any form, uh, a time when computers and fax machines were luxury items that even middle-class uh, you know, families could not afford or if they could, they certainly couldn't justify spending that kind of money on them for what they did. Uh, many of At that point, really, I mean, many of them were just monochrome screens that didn't really have a visual operating system whatsoever or anything like a word processor. Uh, and so really, if you had a computer, and many people didn't, it couldn't do more than what a typewriter did. Uh, so if you... Think about it. The World Wide Web was first launched in 1994. I, I think the first uh, PC with an operating system that had a word processor on it that was 
uh, could do more than a simple typewriter could do is probably uh, Windows 95, which was released in 1995. Uh, and even at that point, most people still would not have even had a fax machine or an email address for sever several more years. So essentially from this first standardization, uh, standardization of the law in 1935 to the point where technology made more variety possible, we're talking about some six decades. Uh, and then there was still another decade between then when the technology was here uh, and when the law would have been updated to keep pace with latest technological advances. So functionally, it's really only been uh, within the last 10 years that technology has reached a place where a more modern set of rules could be put in place uh, to allow that kind of variety of regulation. And if you go back to some of like the very first editions of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, you will see that the clear and conspicuous standard was really just limited to capitalizing the words when other disclosures are printed in lower case. And I have an example uh, of how and why this was helpful. I, I recently wrote an article for the 10th Amendment Center on the case of uh, Cooper v. Aaron, so I just happen to have that case brief around right now. If you want to go uh, read that article, I'll make it in the description. It's actually a really good article, but... So that's why I've been using Cooper versus Aaron here. Uh, and if you look at this cover page, uh, if, like, if a judge or a clerk was quickly looking for the key information on something uh, like this legal brief, what you notice is the only information that you can see when you just kind of look at it very quickly is that same information that it says needs to be clear and conspicuous. So this is a close-up image of the same page. I just made it big enough so you can see uh, the case summary as well. And what you can see uh, is that in the content, as opposed to the heading of the brief, the parties' names appear uh, written in a customary way, just as we would expect them to be. So they don't use all caps every time they mention a person's name. The reason we capitalize the party's name uh, at the top is done so just simply according to the law uh, and the law says not only that we should do it but it tells us why we should do it and that is there's no green conspiracy it's just a simple matter of practicality now uh, jay the user who asked me to cover this topic did bring up an interesting point uh, he mentioned that when he began representing himself pro se in family court, he noticed that documents didn't necessarily have his names in all capitalization, even at the top. Um, and there's actually a, a very mundane reason for this as well. Uh, and that is because part of what they've been doing ever since they started standardizing law um, is they've not only tried to codify the law and bring it together, but they've also tried to make their updates to the law more comprehensible to laymen uh, who can't necessarily afford to hire a lawyer, since the only time one is entitled to an attorney is if they are a criminal defendant. So, for example, if we look at Rule 
32 from the Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure. We can see right at the top after uh, it says what you need to do for forms and briefs uh, on the cover. Uh, and it says right there, except for unrepresented parties, it must contain da 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 da. Um, and it lists all those tedious rules. So essentially, the court gives leeway to people representing themselves. Uh, and it's likely his name didn't appear in capital letters because he didn't put his name in capital letters uh, in his spelling when he filled out the court documents. And because he was filing them uh, with the court himself, representing himself, the paperwork was not rejected flat out the way it would have been rejected had it been submitted by an attorney because they have been doing what they can to make it easier for people to represent themselves. All right, next up, we're going to be talking about the gold-fringed flag. Now, for those of you who may not know, there is a, a sovereign citizen belief that anytime you see a gold-fringed flag hanging in a courtroom, that means that that court is acting under admiralty jurisdiction and is not a common law court. Now, admiralty law and maritime law are simply a set of rules that are there to adjudicate disputes that take place on coasting waters, uh, tidal bodies of water, uh, and navigable waterways, which is kind of a fancy way of saying on the high seas, in ports, on docks, at harbors, and on lakes and rivers, if they are used for shipping and commercial distribution. Now, I find this what the gold fringe flag one really baffling because it lacks even a kernel of truth. Most sovereign citizen conspiracy theories start with something of a kernel of truth. Uh, that, but then they just get so uh, misrepresented in how they interpret it that it just ends up in the end being completely false. But the only thing that I can find to is they point to Title IV in the U.S. Code, which is an area that defines uh, what is and is not an American flag. But the thing is, there is absolutely nothing in there uh, about gold fringe. It does not say that a U.S. flag cannot have gold fringe. It doesn't say that putting gold fringe on a flag has anything to do with admiralty law. Uh, and in fact, there's nothing in Title IV uh, or anywhere in the law at all that ever suggests under any circumstance that a flag has any relation to the kind of jurisdiction of a particular courtroom. This is just entirely imagined from nothing. So I'm not going to discuss how admiralty jurisdiction relates to other areas of law like common law or civil law because that was actually another uh, topic uh, related to sovereign citizens that was requested. Uh, and that's actually an important topic and it's one that deserves uh, more time than I can give it in this video. So uh, now might be a good time to subscribe to the channel to make sure you don't miss the upcoming video. Uh, where I will be talking about the difference between these different types of jurisdictions and how you can tell one from another and how they relate to each other. Uh, that'll be a really interesting video, I assure you. So, um, 
for now, it should suffice to say that there is just, there's simply no reason to think that a flag in a courtroom has anything to do with establishing jurisdiction of the court. That's just ridiculous. Uh, and next up is uh, color of law. Now, Jay asked me about the difference between, uh, he asked about common law, color of law, civil code law, and admiralty law. The reason I'm only doing one of these now uh, is because one of these things is not like the other. So color of law is not an area of law. It is actually just one single law. And it is, this law here is from 18 U.S.C. section 242 uh, and is deprivation of rights under color of law. Uh, and it just, uh, who, whoever under color of law, statute, ordinance, regulation, or custom willfully subjects any person in a state, territory, commonwealth, possession, or the district uh, to the deprivation of any right, privilege, or immunity secured or protected by the Constitution or laws of the United States. Uh, and it goes on, but essentially what it's saying is that people who violate your rights uh, while claiming uh, the authority of government in any way when they don't have the authority of government is uh, uh, against the law in and of itself. And that is what color of law is. It means acting under color of law, act, acting as though you are authorized by the state to do what you were doing when you are fact, when in fact you are not. And next up, he wanted to talk about the difference between in-law and at-law. Um, and this is actually a slightly incorrect phrasing. What is actually being referred to here is suits at-law or suits in equity. Now, this harkens back to a time when these two areas of law were handled by two completely separate jurisdictions of law. Traditionally, English courts followed a distinction between courts of law and courts of equity. And a court of equity is a type of court uh, that hears cases involving remedies other than monetary damages, so it's generally for seeking injunctions, writs, or special performances, whereas a court of law only hears cases involving monetary damages. Uh, these were known as courts of chancery. Uh, in English, that's what they called uh, courts of equity or courts of chancery. And this was actually a tradition that uh, we did carry on for some time here. You can see Article 3, uh, Section 2 of the Constitution. It says uh, that the judicial power of the United States shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution and the laws of the United States. Now, actually, state courts followed suit with uh, virtually all states establishing both a common law uh, court where suits at law would be decided, and they also generally established their own separate courts of chancery that were empowered to hear suits in equity. And the distinction between these two groups of courts has now largely been dissolved because uh, this also actually uh, goes back to the adoption of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure in 1938. And what this did was it 
gave courts a combined jurisdiction over matters of both law and equity. Uh, now, certain uh, states, I think it's just Delaware, was it Mississippi, New Jersey, South Carolina, and Tennessee, uh, all actually still maintain courts of equity. Uh, but those exceptions notwithstanding, the federal rules of civil procedure has merged law and equity into one type of suit that is now known as a civil action. Uh, however, while these separate courts have merged, uh, the distinction between them has remained relevant for the purposes of determining applicability uh, of the Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial in suit at common law. And uh, the final topic we're going to be discussing here today is talking about the differences between privileges of citizenship versus human rights. Now, a common uh, conspiracy among the sovereign citizen movement is a belief that the Privileges and Immunities Clause in the 14th Amendment replaced natural rights with privileges of citizenship. And they essentially contend that uh, privileges of citizenship means a temporary grant that can be revoked. Now, again, as with most sovereign citizen conspiracies, there actually is a kernel of truth to what they have to say here. The problem is that they believe it under the common law and under the U.S. Constitution, we are granted natural rights, and that with the passage of the 14th Amendment, this new concept of privileges and immunities was created, essentially came out of nowhere, and that this amendment uh, took away these constitutional and common law natural rights. Now, this is easily disproven because, as it happens, privileges and immunities was not a new concept that came around in 1865 with the passage of the 14th Amendment. They already existed in both English common law and in the originally ratified Constitution. Now, the most common view of what privileges and immunities were, they weren't quite natural rights, but in their own class of rights that existed alongside natural rights as two separate categories that did not in any way conflict or supersede each other. And some people considered privileges and immunities as a uh, legal expression of natural rights, uh, but really the point is that no one ever believed that uh, by accepting something like privileges or immunities of citizenship, that that ever in any way robbed you of your natural rights. Actually, rather than discuss the 14th Amendment uh, Privileges and Immunities Clause, which I've actually done in other videos, uh, and if you want to know more about that clause, uh, you can go check out my video uh, on the 14th Amendment and the Incorporation Doctrine, and I actually really go through it very thoroughly there. Uh, but for uh, today, uh, rather than discuss that, I want to look at the meaning of the concept of privileges and immunities under the English common law and Article 4 of the Constitution, since this actually makes a stronger argument against the sovereign citizen view. So the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 4 reads, The citizens of each state shall be entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. 
Though privileges and immunities constituted a critical element of the ancient rights of Englishmen that the colonists fought to maintain during the struggle against the mother country. And founding documents such as the Declaration uh, and Resolves of the First Continental Congress in the Articles of Confederation championed, uh, and, and in the Articles cases actually protected outright these rights. And at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, the Committee of Detail proposed the text that would become the Article 4 Privileges and Immunities Clause, and the framers uh, approved it with no debate. Now, in many uh, of the charters of the original colonies, the Crown had guaranteed some variation of what were known as franchises, privileges, immunities, and liberties, uh, and it guaranteed these to all free and natural subjects. Uh, as if they uh, and every one of them were born within the realm of England. And this ultimately derived from the privileged grants of land in medieval England, the privileges, immunities, franchises, and liberties summed up the legal rights of freemen, which were inestimably uh, greater than those afforded to serfs, uh, to indentured servants, or to foreigners. And the crown granted them to the colonists in the New World with the same extent uh, as to freemen in England itself, thereby really creating a common subject status among freeborn Englishmen. And the package of rights uh, granted to the colonists has distinct components. Uh, liberties were not actually rights of individuals, but were actually the right of a guild, uh, and this later of a corporation or manor, uh, or, or a monastery too, actually, to make and enforce laws within their own jurisdiction. This was essentially a formal grant of liberty uh, from the king as a franchise, and it was, in effect, a partial transfer of the king's prerogative to declare the law. Uh, thus, when the king allowed a colony uh, the right from time to time to make, ordain, and establish all manner of wholesome and reasonable laws, statutes, ordinances, directions, and instructions, not contrary to the laws of the realm of England, the king was legally granting a franchise to the colonists to exercise the liberty of self-governance. The phrase to exercise the franchise, meaning to vote, uh, ultimately derives from the older notion of the liberty to make laws. The liberties and franchises consist, uh, constituted the power of a governing unit to make rules. In contrast, immunities were exceptions that the king granted from the force of the law. Immunities gave individuals, towns, or other entities freedom from having to abide by legal obligation. And the king frequently gave villages and guilds immunity from having to pay tolls on merchandise produced within their precincts. And this uh, protected the guild uh, that later developed into a notion of what was known as a common calling. Uh, the king also granted certain individuals immunity from compulsory public service. Now, the courts were the entities that enforced privileges, uh, which included trial by jury, uh, the initiation of suits against freemen by summons, uh, 
the right against arrest, uh, freedom from civil process while a witness or an attorney was at court, uh, or while a clergyman was performing divine service, uh, the exclusion of essential personal property, uh, like plows or tools of one's trade, from uh, from distraint, uh, and also the benefits of uh, clergy in capital cases, which meant that the first-time offenders received a more lenient sentence for certain crimes. And the rights of possession and inheritance of land, uh, the right to use deadly force to defend one's abode, the privilege of members of parliament to be free from arrest while on duty, uh, as well as the writ of habeas corpus, and the right of merchants in certain towns to trade freely. Uh, so conceptually, privileges and immunities refer to exceptions from otherwise applicable law, and thus came to be seen as logically interchangeable. Now, in America, there were specific practical effects to the guarantees of privileges and immunities. Uh, first, despite the significant differences among the colonies, the granting of common privileges and immunities made all colonists common subjects under a single crown. Second, any freeman had the right to travel and to take up residence within any of the English colonies. No, colon no colonist could be held to be a foreigner in any other colony. So uh, Benjamin Franklin, for example, was born in Boston uh, and became a Pennsylvanian simply by moving to Philadelphia. Third, uh, as had been described, privileges and immunities refer to a specific set of legal entitlements, uh, both individual as well as communitarian. And finally, the grant of privileges and immunities operated as a kind of equal protection guarantee, particularly for merchants. It meant that temporary travelers in a colony, uh, not just those who moved in to take up residence, could buy and sell and have the protection of the law without the need for a special grant or charter from a host colony. Uh, and even under the umbrella of mercantilism, then common privileges and immunities allowed for a robust exchange of goods and commercial paper. So uh, the privilege to be free from economic discrimination was based on the underlying right to carry on a lawful trade. The government could pass uh, generally applicable laws and commercial regulations, but it could not discriminate against visitors in their lawful mercantile activities. Corporations as creations of the state were a special case, but if a government agent prevented a freeman from participating in mercantile endeavors on equal legal grounds with others, the freeman could justly claim a violation of his rights as a freeborn English subject. So, in sum, uh, the colonial experience of privileges and immunities meant, first of all, membership in a common political community. Secondly, a right to travel. Third, a series of particularly defined rights centering around access to the courts. And fourth, equal protection of the laws for commercial activities based upon the right of every free man to a lawful calling.
Now, in his commentaries on the laws of England, Sir William Blackstone had written that immunities were the natural rights that a citizen continued to enjoy after a government had been formed, and privileges were the substitutes that the government gave to citizens for their rights that had been given up when entering into society. However, American colonists came to think of them differently. Uh, along uh, the path to independence, privileges and immunities began to be set alongside ideas of natural rights as mutual supports for the patriot cause. But the colonies defined uh, them as different categories of rights. The notion of privileges and immunities refer to a set of historically obtained rights and not to our general natural rights. Though the two categories are always seen to be in harmony, uh, now the First Continental Congress uh, made that distinction in their Declarations and Resolves of 1774. The delegates asserted some rights as natural, uh, that is, the colonists were entitled to life, liberty, and property, uh, and they have never ceded to any sovereign power whatsoever the right to dispose of either uh, or those rights without their consent. But when the delegates came to describing the privileges and immunities of the colonists, they pointed to specific English grants uh, that, uh, to quote exactly, they said that these, His Majesty's colonies, are likewise entitled to all the immunities and privileges granted and confined to them by royal charters or secured by the several codes of provincial laws. So after independence, a clause protecting uh, privileges and immunities went through a number of drafts before its final formulation in the Articles of Confederation. So the privileges and immunities in the Articles of Confederation deal explicitly with three different rights. The first one being a ban on discrimination against persons in other states, uh, for example, access to judicial procedure. The second was a right to travel. And a third, a ban on discrimination on the privileges of trade and commerce, which would later be formulated as what we would call a lawful calling. Now, uh, constitutional scholar Rob Madelson has suggested that the first guarantee of no discrimination against out-of-state persons derived from the fact that the states, uh, as have the colonies, possessed the right of internal self-governance, and it was therefore necessary to limit its abuse against residents of the state. On the other hand, in colonial times, the legislative authority of the British Empire controlled the right to travel and to conduct business. However, because the drafters of the Articles of Confederation refused to place such powers in the Confederated Congress, it was necessary to establish, uh, additionally, the right to travel and to conduct business on a separate textual guarantee. And when the drafters of the Constitution established the power of Congress to control interstate commerce, there was then no need for a separate guarantee for travel and business, uh, as that would be, uh, it, it would be as it had been under the Empire in the hands of the central government. So thus, the Privileges and Immunities Clause in Article 4 only guarantees protection against discrimination of out-of-staters by host states uh, in their exercise of internal police power. 
And actually, in Federalist 42, James Madison uh, bluntly declared that the privileges and immunities clause in the Articles of Confederation was repetitive and confusing and stood in the way of Congress's power to regulate naturalization. And as a result, the Constitution's Article 4 became simpler and direct. It created a common citizenship, but Congress would determine who could become citizens. It also prohibited states from discriminating against residents of other states in judicial processes and in economic activities. Now, as the colonists had insisted during the struggle with England, the Privileges and Immunities Guarantee did not refer to a set of independent natural rights. In fact, many of the new state constitutions distinguish between natural rights and privileges and immunities. Privileges and immunities remained positive, not natural. Uh, these were rights uh, that were subject to tradition of liberty as self-government, and consequently, after the revolution, the states stood in the place of parliament uh, that they had occupied in the 1760s, uh, when privileges and immunities had existed, uh, and some certainly were really long-standing and fundamental. Uh, but the people, through their legislatures, could alter them. Now, despite the presumed common corpus of privileges and immunities derived from the tradition, uh, Article 4 of the Constitution does not compel a state to provide for the privileges and immunities of its own citizens, but only to treat out-of-state residents equally in the enjoyment of whatever privileges and immunities obtained within the state. However, uh, a few years later, there was a judge who equated privileges and immunities with individual natural rights in the uh, case of Corfield versus Coriel from 1823. Uh, Justice uh, Bushrod Washington, uh, writing circuit, declared, The inquiry is, what are the privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states? We feel no hesitation in confining these expressions to the privileges and immunities which are in their natural fundamental, uh, which are in their nature fundamental, which belong of right to the citizens of all free governments, and which have at all times been enjoyed by the citizens of the several states which compose this union uh, from the time of their becoming free, independent, and sovereign. Now, it's important to keep in mind that Justice uh, Bushrod Washington's statement was an example of obiter dictum. Uh, the actual holding, he decided, was that New York could discriminate against out-of-state citizens for harvesting of oysters because the citizens of New Jersey owned the oysters as a natural resource. And while a number of courts have cited Corfield versus Coriel before the Civil War, they only ever did... Uh, did it for its main holding and not for its dicta. So, Bushrod Washington's dictum, however, has actually taken on a life of its own. Um, it has figured into uh, abolitionist ideology uh, and had much to do with the debate over the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, however, the Supreme Court has continued to reject it as defining the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 4 
uh, which was decided uh, most importantly in the case of McCain versus Gerson of 1894. Well, that is going to do it for the show today. I do want to thank you all so much for being here with me. Uh, uh, if you would take a moment and uh, subscribe to the channel right now, I would very much appreciate it. Uh, leave me a comment. Let me know what you thought. Uh, I'd generally be interested to hear your guys' thoughts. Uh, if you like the video, smash the like button. And then uh, if you, also, if you like the video, I ask you to just take a minute uh, and think of one person you know who uh, you think would also like this video or, or may appreciate hearing uh, this information, what I had to say, and just take a moment. Uh, and send this to them. And if you would help me grow the channel that way, uh, I would really appreciate it. Uh, and if you hated today's video, just, uh, you know, take a minute and think of someone you know who would also hate the video uh, and just go ahead and send it to them because I'm a masochist and to be honest, your hate gets me off. So anyways, uh, until next time, I have been uh, Locking Liberal. Uh, this has been Categorical Imperatives talking about the Sovereign Citizen Movement. Uh, and as always, De Linda est Carthago.